Hello and welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both forgotten and famous, who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it with live history storytelling. We're in Berlin, but sometimes the Dead Lady Show finds another home far from our shores. So far this season, we've taken you to lovely Wellington, New Zealand, and now we're headed somewhere else new, New York City. Here to tell us more is Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsens. Florian, how did a show from Berlin get to the East Village in Manhattan? That's a very good question. The answer to that question is very simple. It's Molly O'Loughlin Kemper. Yay! It was a friend, and she came to a few shows in Berlin while she was living there. And then when she was forced to move back to New York City uh, for work, she's a writer, translator, and editor, um, she very kindly asked us if she could start a sister show in the East Village, which I'm very excited about. And uh, she's been hitting it out of the park ever since. Um, so this is New York. It's recorded in New York. You're going to hear some sirens in the background of these recordings. Just consider it mood music for some ladies who take no prisoners. Um, we have two fantastic American dead ladies in this episode for you from two charming presenters in New York. The first is Amy Padnani. She's an obituary editor at the New York Times. Very cool. And even cooler, she created the fantastic Overlooked series, uh, for the paper, which began in 2018. Now, Overlooked was started to highlight notable women from history at, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> good cause, um, and those women whose deaths went unreported by the newspaper's obituary desk. So it's a year into their series. It's been broadened out a little bit to include other unrepresented folks, including people of color. And in her presentation, Amy talks a bit about her work on Overlooked, and introduces us to one of her favorite discoveries, the dedicated nurse, brilliant inventor, and skilled forensic handwriting analyst, Bessie Blount. Here she is. So I learned about Bessie through my work. As you can imagine, I hear about a lot of amazing dead ladies through my job on obituaries. I'm also the creator, as you heard, of a series called Overlooked that tells the stories of women and people of color who never got a New York Times obit since we began publishing in 1851. I came up with the idea for this series after noticing that we would get a lot of emails from readers asking, hey, why don't you have more women and people of color in your obituary pages? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, why don't we? The page is a sea of white men. I learned that only 20% of our obits were on women. I asked my boss, the head of obits, why this is, and he said, well, the people dying today are from an era when many women and people of color weren't invited to make a difference. But the answer, <laughs> the answer just didn't feel satisfying to me. So I had this thought in the back of my mind when one day I came across a website talking about Mary Outerbridge. She was credited with introducing tennis to America in 1874. On a hunch, I checked the archives and saw that she never received a New York Times obituary. I began researching more names and I started a list. Once I had a couple dozen people, I went back to my boss and I suggested we do a series telling their stories now. We learned that the Times omitted many remarkable people from its obits pages. There was Ida B. Wells, the journalist, the brilliant poet, Sylvia Plath, Emily Warren Roebling, who finished building the Brooklyn Bridge when her husband, the engineer, became ill. The project launched on International Women's Day on March 8, 2018, and I knew the project would be powerful. 
but I didn't expect the response to be equally powerful. I received hundreds of emails. Many were from readers thanking me for finally giving a voice to these women. Some said they cried on their way to work because they finally felt seen for the first time in a long time. Other emails were from colleagues of mine who said they never thought a woman of color would be allowed to achieve something like this at the New York Times. We had a reader submission form asking people to suggest other women we overlooked. One of my favorites was Grandma Gatewood. She survived 30 years of domestic violence at the hands of her husband and would escape by taking walks in the woods. One day, he beat her beyond recognition, even breaking a broomstick over her head. In response, she threw flour in his face. And when the police arrived, they arrested her, not him. The mayor saw her and took her in his own home until she recovered and got a divorce. Then she came across an article in National Geographic about how no one had hiked the Appalachian Trail alone. And she decided to do it, taking very little with her, a shower curtain for the rain, some snacks, and a comfortable pair of kits. People eventually heard about the old lady who was hiking the 2,000-mile path alone, and reporters began covering the story. They would watch her, people would watch her traipsing across the rough path on the evening news, and they were inspired. If this grandmother could hike the trail, they figured they could, too. A camera crew was waiting for her at the finish, and everyone was amazed at how she could survive so rough a place. Little did they know what she had suffered before that. Another favorite of mine was Minnie Freeman. She was a Nebraska school teacher in 1888 when there was a freak blizzard. It was gorgeous morning, and everyone left their jackets at home. Then, when all the kids were at school, the clouds came in and the sky grew dark. All the teachers were wondering what to do. One kept the kids in overnight. Another sent the kids home early. But in Minnie's little schoolhouse, the wind had torn off the door and the roof. She looked around and found some twine, wrapped it around each child and then around herself, scooped up the littlest one in her arms, and led them a mile to safety in the blizzard. I learned about Minnie Freeman from a reader who was a teacher in Nebraska and said she was inspired by Minnie's story at a time when school teachers are expected to leap into bravery in really scary situations. So another reader suggested I look into Bessie's life. So let me tell you about Bessie. She was born in 1921 in Hickory, Virginia, which is now part of Chesapeake. She grew up poor. Her parents were George Woodward and Mary Elizabeth Griffin. They never got married, and at some point, Bessie decided to take on her grandmother's maiden name as her last name. Not entirely sure why. George was in the military and died when Bessie was pretty young. Bessie and her mother became really good friends. Though they were a generation apart, both Bessie and her mom went to Diggs Chapel Elementary School. The school was built after the Civil War by the black community for the children of freed slaves. What's really interesting about Bessie is that in every aspect of her career, she kept running into obstacles at a time when black people struggled to be accepted in everyday society. In the backdrop, there were all these important his historical events happening that ultimately led to social change. The school's history is just one example. It was also while at this school that I feel like Bessie experienced a pivotal moment that reflected the sort of person she was going to be. She was a lefty, but when she picked up her pencil to write, her teacher would whack her hand. This essentially annoyed the crap out of Bessie. <laughs> she said, forget about this, and taught herself to write with her teeth and her feet instead. She even refused to go back to the school for an entire year. She was still incredulous about this more than 80 years later when she was quoted in the Virginian Pilot newspaper as saying, 
I figured if I couldn't write with my left hand, then I couldn't write with my right hand either. We'll come back to this soon, but this ability to write with her teeth and her feet would come up again later in her life. When she finally finished elementary school, she found that there was no place in Virginia for her to continue her education. African Americans were not welcome in the existing schools in the 1930s. So she and her mom moved to New Jersey, which is where she would live for the rest of her life, although she was hardly one to settle or sit still. She decided to go into nursing at Kenny Memorial Hospital in Newark. The hospital also had a really interesting history. It had been founded by Booker T. Washington's physician, John A. Kenny Sr., after he moved to the area and found that hospitals would not hire black doctors. She also studied at the Union Junior College, now Union County College in Jersey, and Panzer College of Physical Education and Hygiene, now part of Montclair State University. And she studied physical therapy for a bit at a school in Chicago. She eventually took a job at Bronx Hospital. A lot of her patients were World War II veterans who were amputees. Many of them had lost their arms. So Bessie was able to make use of that skill from her childhood. She taught these veterans to write with their teeth and their feet. You're not crippled, only crippled in your mind, she would tell them. A doctor then told her, if you really want to help these boys, you'll find a way for them to feed themselves. So Bessie, being Bessie, said, well, I'll do that too. Within about 10 months, she came up with her initial design for what she would eventually call an invalid feeder. Her workshop was her kitchen, and her materials were plastic, a file, an ice pick, a hammer, dishes, and boiling water to melt the plastic into a mold. I usually work from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m., she told the Afro-American newspaper in 1948. She got a patent for the initial design. Here it is. It shows her first version, essentially a holder that attached to the patient's neck on which you could place a cup or a dish with food in it. But she wasn't done. In the patent, she described her plans for the final version, a much fancier device. She then spent another four years putting together a model. I interviewed her son, Philip, for this story, and he told me about how she babysat for extra money so she could afford the materials. She wanted to use stainless steel, which was really expensive at the time. She spent $3,000 of her own money and finally came up with a working model, which she demonstrated at a hospital in New Jersey. The patient would bite down on a tube and a motor would kick on. The device would then deliver a bite full of food through a mouthpiece shaped like a spoon. It would shut off automatically to allow the patient time to chew. She got a standing ovation after the demo and a ton of praise, including from the director emeritus of the American College of Surgeons, who called it a most ingenious apparatus. An engineer told her it was worth $100,000, which today would be almost a cool mill. She tried to sell it to the United States government for that amount, but they no longer expressed interest, or at least didn't want to pay for it. The head of the Veterans Administration wrote her a letter saying it was impractical and that patients could just be fed by the nurses. Whatever, jerk. <laughs> she was a follower of Father Divine, a preacher who ran the International Peace Mission Movement, and she confided in him. He said that she should just give it away for free for the benefit of humanity and so it could be put to good use. So she found a home for it with the French government, which expressed interest in using it in its military hospitals. She gave it to them for a dollar and signed away her rights to any royalties. When asked why she gave up on seeking money, she would say, forget me. It's what we as a race have contributed to humanity, that as a black female, we can do more than nurse their babies and clean their toilets. Hell yeah, Bessie. <laughs> she went back to work, helping patients with disabilities. 
She taught some of them to type with her toes and even helped one read braille with his feet. She started noticing some odd patterns in the handwriting or toe writing of her patients. The writing would change over time as they went through therapy. She even insisted at one point that she could identify characteristics of ailments through their writing. She could tell, for instance, when some of them had high blood pressure, and she could tell how the writing would change as the patients went through treatments. So she believed your handwriting is the graph, if you will, of your whole body, your mental and your physical state. She got really into this and figured there was a lot more she could learn about handwriting and what it said about people. Her son said he was bummed she never wrote a book because she would talk about all kinds of fascinating things. For instance, she said with certain Asian cultures that read from right to left instead of left to right, it signified how much of their actions were based on their past, that they were sort of stuck in the past. And with people who wrote with all caps, it meant they thought very highly of themselves. <laughs> As her son told me, everything leads to everything else, and Bessie completely changed her focus and worked, started working in forensics, analyzing handwriting for various police departments in New Jersey and Virginia. In 1977, she went to Scotland Yard to study in their documents division. She was believed to be the first black American woman to study there. They told her, there's not much we can teach you as far as science goes, but we can teach you how to decipher between real and forged documents. Her son said she would carry a tote bag to the lab every day with all her papers, and she'd have all kinds of snacks in there, like apples and candy bars, and she would offer it to the workers in the lab. They eventually started calling her Mama Bessie, and the nickname stuck. So when she went back to New Jersey, Mama Bessie started a consulting business out of her home, assisting in court cases. She would study evidence and create posters with her findings magnified on them to show to the jury. Her son said, there's this old black woman sitting in the back row, not saying anything. And then when the lawyer would say, okay, I have my expert witness, she'd stand up, throw off her coat, throw off her rain bonnet, and she was silver-haired, and then she'd stand up and present her theory. It blew them away. On the side, Bessie wrote for the New Jersey Herald News. One of the events she covered was a 1964 creation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, a political organization run by Fannie Lou Hamer during the Civil Rights Movement. She kept making gadgets, too. She had a patient with one arm who had difficulty doing oil treatments on her own hair. So Bessie started working on an oil comb that would dispense oil while allowing the patient to comb her hair at the same time. She also started working on a, working on a sort of accordion that you could play without arms. <laughs> I don't believe she got patents for these gadgets though and I don't know how far she got with them. One that she got a little further with was a kidney-shaped vomit basin that she made out of paper mache. A plastic version of this is still really common in hospitals. She was also an associate of the Montreal Rehabilitation Institute. She would take trips to Canada and work on projects like taking purses and other discarded materials and making prosthetic devices out of them. Once, she was approached by an African-American museum to donate some of her gadgets and other samples of her work, but she was really offended about the idea of her work being tied to her race. The science of a color, she would say, why should I donate things I made, she said, and they'll charge students to go and see them. No. I'll take them to schools where the kids can hold them, touch them, she added. I'll tell them, you're a part of history. So she became an avid lecturer, and there were countless articles written about her talks at schools and civic organizations all over the country. In 2008, she went back to Hickory, Virginia, to the site of her old elementary school. 
It had been burned down years earlier, and she was scoping out places where she could build a museum dedicated to the school and the accomplishments of people who had gone there. By this point, there were lots of articles remembering her for Black History Month as a historical figure. They all made it sound like she was long gone, and I think this annoyed her. She was 93 and had no plans to die anytime soon. In fact, she said, I'm going to live just for spite because my work is not done. <laughs> she never finished a museum, though. She died the next year on December 30th, 2009. She was 95. I'd like to share with you one of the comments that her overlooked obituary receives. It was from Bev Osborne on Facebook. She said of Bessie, she taught my older brother's veteran friend to type on a suspended keyboard using his teeth. After a couple of years, he was running a small personnel company from his bed. It was amazing to be able to hear from someone so close to Bessie's legacy. Her story really impressed me. It's unusual to find someone who can reinvent themselves in so many ways and not let a backdrop of injustice interfere. I think many people, for various reasons, women, people of color, LGBT community, they encounter discrimination and feel beaten down like they don't count and they can't speak up for themselves. I know I have at times. And I'm hopeful her story is an inspiration for the obstacles that we can all overcome. Thanks. Amy Padmani and Bessie Blount. Our next lady is fabulous black feminist radical activist Florence Kennedy. A lawyer by training and a rebel in practice, Flo was loud, proud, and uncowed. <laughs> she did it all dressed in a flamboyant cowboy hat, pink sunglasses, and false eyelashes. Here with her story from New York is Deborah Straley, a PhD student at Yale University studying the history of healthcare and alternative medicine in the U.S. All right, I'm one beer in, so I'm feeling ready. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, Florence Ray Kennedy, and she went by Flo. And so I first learned about this particular lawyer activist dead lady from Sherry Randolph's excellent biography, Florence Flo Kennedy, The Life of a Black Feminist Radical, uh, which I read in graduate school, which I will be in forever. <laughs> <laughs> so after reading the book, I kind of couldn't believe that Flo wasn't already a household name. When Randolph, the her biographer, was doing her graduate work in the 90s, it had already seemed like Flo had been lost to history. But Flo was well-known in the 60s and 70s for a few reasons. One, her attention-grabbing activism and courtroom successes. And here you can see one of her protests. She was outside representing H. Rap Brown, looking very cool. Um, she was also known for lecturing around the US with Gloria Steinem. Um, so she toured often at colleges and universities. She was a speaker. And she was also interviewed many times on TV, and she hosted her own TV show. So I ended up having to give a presentation on Flo the day before the 2016 presidential election. And having studied Flo's life closely in the days before the election, it really paid off because her, her insights into how politics and oppression work, they felt very relevant to today. In short, I think Flo would be like really pissed, but not surprised to see where we're at today. And she would be calling, uh, calling us to join her in demanding justice. So here's a picture of her on a set of a TV show in 1976, looking really tired of this shit, you know? <laughs> now, it's easy to love Flo in retrospect for her sauciness. For example, when she was lecturing with Gloria Steinem in the 70s, often dudes would come up and be like, hey, are you guys lesbians? Yeah. And, um, and Flo would be like, are you my alternative? <laughs> 
to be fair, she borrowed that line from one of her friends, T. Grace Atkinson, who deserves a dead lady show of her own. So, but Flo's reputation as, quote, the biggest, loudest, and indisputably the rudest mouth on the battleground, it earned her criticism, too. She was threatened, and she often feared for her life as a black woman, and her entire life's work was dismissed by some white feminists who called her merely an entertainer and not a real feminist because of her street theater tactics. Flo fought for every kind of justice with ferocity, but she also had style and flair, so she sang loudly. Stay tuned for that later, we'll see a clip. She laughed, she enlisted passersby, and she fired off witty comments. And when that turned people off, Flo criticized them right back, and she just kept on going. And the legacy of her political tactics, especially her intersectionality, or commitment to fighting multiple kinds of oppression, is both evident and still necessary in activism today. Flo took on challenges big and small, and I'll give you a good example. So after 300 years, Harvard finally decided to consider admitting a very small number of women. And here's some women protesting for equal access in 1971. Uh, and Harvard didn't end up going fully co-ed until 1977. In 1973, which is the incident that I'm gonna be talking about, it had only been a few years by then that women were allowed to access Harvard's undergraduate library. So women, first they had to sit for these entrance exams in Lowell Hall, which you see here. As you can imagine, this was probably already a pretty stressful event for anyone, but especially for women who were accused of competing to steal men's places at the school. So the problem was that Lowell Hall only had one bathroom, and the administration had made it clear that it was only for men. Women had lobbied for access to the bathroom or for additional bathrooms to be built in the building, but Harvard told them that they were perfectly free to leave the exam. They could walk across the street and find a bathroom somewhere else in some other building, but that would take 15 minutes from this timed exam. So several women were like, let's call Flo. <laughs> so in 1973, Flo organized uh, what she called a protest pee-in on the Harvard Yard. <laughs> So protesters carried around signs and banners with slogans like, to pee or not to pee? <laughs> that is the question. <laughs> and they had glass jars of what appeared to be urine. Um, so Kennedy gave a speech in front of Lowell Hall pointing out that this just wasn't just about an inconvenience. Um, this was about a long history of institutionalized inequality. And while it hadn't been built for them, women and their bladders had long been present at Harvard. And in fact, they had made Harvard what it was. So after her impassioned speech, Flo invited activists to open their jars and let the yellow liquid flow onto the steps of Lowell Hall. <laughs> Flo raised her clenched fist and shouted, let the dean of Harvard be warned, unless Lowell Hall gets a room for women so that women taking exams don't have to hold it in or run across the street or waste time deciding whether to pee or not to pee, next year we'll be back doing the real thing. <laughs> So this was a classic flow event in that it both drew attention to a serious issue and it was also um, had a lighthearted side and it inspired other people to join political engagement. Flo also knew that to get the attention of the media, which was dominated by white men, demonstrations that she organized, they had to be kind of outrageous. And she ended up being a brilliant media strategist. So if that's what Flo was doing in the 70s, um, can you imagine her today with social media? Yeah. I have some really poorly put together examples. <laughs> so on the left it says, judge yelled at me for wearing slacks in court, made me wonder, how is it that in two of the most anti-feminist institutions, the church and the law court, the men are wearing the dresses? Which is based on a real incident, so she had gone in to defend a client and 
the judge almost threw her out because she was wearing slacks. Slacks. <laughs> Part of what made um, Flo's antics work was Flo herself. Um, she was witty and fun, and she had a pithy, self-deprecating description of herself that she often repeated to journalists. Um, so she said, I'm just a loudmouth middle-aged colored lady with a fused spine and three feet of intestines missing, and a lot of people think I'm crazy. Maybe you do too, but I never stop to wonder why I'm not like other people. The mystery to me is why more, more people aren't like me. So I, for one, think the world would be much improved if more people had Flo's dedication to justice and her great style, but how did she get to be that way? So she was born in 1916 in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow, all right. Um, and from an early age, she was made to understand the racial hierarchy of her neighborhood and her city. Uh, her family lived in a poor, mostly white area, and her father kept a shotgun to drive off the KKK, who often stopped by to harass them. Her parents encouraged her and her four sisters to be confident and to stand up for themselves. Um, in an interview, Flo explained, I had the world's greatest parents. Not only were they great, but they thought we were great. They thought we were flawless. And Flo always had this great confidence in herself, as you can see from this fantastic <laughs> outfit. Um, and I think that made her parents' confidence in her made doing what she did possible. So being confrontational, doing the unexpected, challenging what other people told her was impossible. She always knew that she was important. She felt like she was a star. And um, she demanded that other people recognize that. She always demanded adequate pay. Um, she only spoke at universities on certain conditions that she wouldn't be heckled. And she knew what she was worth. And she ended up channeling that her charisma into multiple justice movements. So Flo got involved in activism in her early 20s. First, she boycotted the Coca-Cola bottling company for refusing to hire black drivers. And then she and her sister Grace staged a nonviolent protest against racial, racial discrimination on the Santa Fe company bus. This was just kind of beginning to echo other groups who were starting to hold public um, sit-ins in public places. So this was in 1942. Uh, Randolph, so the biographer of Flo, explains one particularly memorable incident in her, in her biography. So when Flo and Grace were at a rest stop, they were informed that the bus stop cafe did not serve, quote, coloreds. Amid a jeering and taunting crowd, the two young black women stood their ground and refused to leave their seats. The crowd pulled them from their stools and threw them out of the restaurant. Kennedy was yanked with such force that her spine was severely dislocated. Grace struggled to move her sister out of the crowd's wrath, and eventually the two made it back to Kansas City. For weeks, Flo remained in bed, as she described, immobilized in a cast that ran underneath her arms down to her tail with her head twisted. Unable to afford proper medical care, she suffered throughout her life from back pain that left her powerless to move her head quickly or fluidly in either direction. And often in her later years, you see her um, sitting down at protests. Um, she's often seated because of this debilitating pain. After Flo's mother died in 1942, Flo moved with one of her sisters to New York City, and eventually the rest of the family followed later. Flo started taking college courses at Columbia University, where she earned top grades, and she graduated in 1948. During the day, she was working tedious clerical jobs and sales jobs to pay tuition, and she was also caring for her two youngest um, sisters and her aging father. Um, she increasingly turned to legal action to secure her rights to a safe apartment, to medical care, and to fight discriminatory admissions policies at Columbia Law School. The law school had initially rejected her, 
And when she went to meet with the dean, he assured her it had nothing to do with her being black. Absolutely nothing to do with her being black. But she was denied admission because she was a woman. <laughs> it's simple. Um, so Flo wrote later, she's like, either way, it feels the same. It was all discrimination. So when she threatened to take her case to the NAACP to file a lawsuit, Columbia miraculously found an open spot and admitted her. She was the only black person in her class, and she was one of 10 women. Once in law school, Flo sort of predictably experienced hostility and indifference and struggled to succeed on uh, elite white men's terms. Yet she began to develop important critiques of the government and began drawing connections between interrelated kinds of oppression. After graduating, Flo faced a lack of job opportunities for black women in law, and she ended up having to accept a job as a clerical worker at a small law firm. I did shit work, she remembered, making sandwiches, getting coffee, researching other lawyers' cases. But in 1954, she was able to open her own private practice in Midtown Manhattan, eventually taking on two partners and building a clientele of entertainers, artists, and writers. Flo had been excluded from the old white boy networking opportunities hosted by Columbia. So to build her professional network, she hosted parties and so-called smokers, which I take to be parties where everyone smoked a lot. I don't really know. <laughs> um, so this would be in her two-bedroom Harlem apartment, which she shared with her sisters. And about 100 people would show up, um, almost entirely white male law students who would you know, eagerly catch cabs and take the train down to her apartment. Flo's sister recalled, it was all the men in Flo. And this was how Flo got her name out, how she discussed the law, how she made important professional connections and friendships. So by now we're in the 1950s, and I want to point out that Flo's autobiography, which you should read, it's really great, is called uh, Color Me Flo, My Hard Life and Good Times. And she's you know, giving a beautiful, you know, flip, flipping us all the finger for eternity. <laughs> Um, but speaking of hard life, Flo did have some exceptionally tough times, especially in this period after law school. One of her legal partners betrayed her, and she was stuck for years working to repay the clients that he defrauded. Okay. Flo was severely ill off and on, um, in part due to her earlier injury. At one point, the doctors told her sisters to prepare for her death, and she was hospitalized, but she managed to recover. But her illness and disability interfered with her daily comfort and her ability to make a living. And despite her serious critiques of marriage, in 1957, she got married. A great misfortune. <laughs> Unfortunately, she did end up wedding an abusive, alcoholic Welsh writer, Charles Dye. Um, he, was a <laughs> boo -boo. he was a white man nine years younger than her, who alternately brought her joy and deep hardship before he ended up drinking himself to death. He died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1959. Here he is on the right. Um, next to this really great picture of Flo in her, in her business attire. <laughs> so Charles, her husband, he made her laugh, and according to her biographer, to Flo's biographer, personal letters in her archive attest to her adoration for him, even though later she ended up denying that she had any love for him. Theirs was definitely an unconventional marriage, which is clearly the only kind that Flo would settle for. After Charles died, Flo never married again, and she never ended up having any children. So despite these hardships, by the early 1960s, Flo was gaining notoriety for her work in entertainment law and intellectual, for intellectual rights and in copyright law. She won compensation for the estates of Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker, and she represented civil rights leader H. Rapp Brown. Central to her strategy was her use of the media to build political pressure. 
So in addition to writing press releases and organizing conferences to publicize her cases, in the mid-60s she started a weekly news column and a half-hour radio show for black audiences, condemning the government and mainstream media and highlighting left-wing groups. She also lent her legal expertise in growing celebrity to political efforts, like Wednesdays in Mississippi, a cross-regional interracial women's movement that provided support to Southern civil rights organizers. So Flo would travel with her team of black and white women of different faiths to these small towns in Mississippi every week during Freedom Summer in 1964. There she connected with black civil rights organizers in the South, and uh, she learned the benefits and disadvantages of working across these regional, racial, and religious lines. Flo grew increasingly disenchanted with the law, which she came to see as a, quote, one ass at a time proposition. <laughs> she wanted to do more, and she increasingly expanded her social network from mostly white lawyers to diverse political groups. She was often the only woman um, and the only black person in the room and was constantly expected to speak for her race. But she used her unique position to loudly defend civil disobedience actions and to criticize the government and the media. She's wearing a t-shirt here that says, if you see it on TV, don't buy it. <laughs> and I want to take you to a particularly important moment for Flo. So on the night of August 9th, 1965, her street was blocked off by a police barrier because of a gas main explosion. Um, so Flo had wait, waited behind the barrier until she saw the police starting to permit several white men to pass. Um, so she explained to the officers, hey, I live like right on this street, you know, can I also pass? Um, and she showed them her identification to prove that her address was in fact there in this white neighborhood. But the officers wouldn't let her pass. She watched the officers let like 15 other white men pass. So she just kind of joined a group, the next group of them that were allowed to pass and walked past the barrier. Um, and Flo's biographer, Randolph, whom I always return to, explains that instantly a team of policemen surrounded her and pushed her into the patrol car. Angry and humiliated, Kennedy loudly protested her arrest. She questioned them about the double standard in allowing the white men to pass while forbidding her to do so. And she reiterated that she was a lawyer and she lived in the neighborhood. She was charged with resisting arrest and obstruction of justice. Kennedy described the brutality and humiliation she endured. I was stripped naked by a policewoman. My clothes were searched and I was even made to squat naked to see if there was anything concealed internally. This ridiculous discriminatory arrest incensed Flo and intensified her mission. She used her network to spread the injustice of this incident far and wide and garnered a lot of media attention, but nevertheless, she was convicted of obstructing justice. Her numerous appeals over the years were always denied. And her sister, Joyce, said Flo was different after the arrest. After this point, Flo basically went all out. She began the Media Workshop, an organization that campaigned to unify black economic power against the media's racist coverage and racist advertising. Um, Flo organized pickets and protests, and her street theater tactics became recognized and feared by advertising companies. She negotiated increased hiring for black employees and charity sponsorships, among other successes. And Flo never focused on just one kind of struggle, but rather she aimed to connect them all as uh, anti-establishmentarianism. Um, and Flo still had fun, and there's a clip here that I'll pick. And you holler, you sing, and you blow your whistles, and you shake your shit, and you do your damn thing. Don't worry about nobody. If you can't sing, don't worry. It's the people's chorus. It ain't the, the rave, whatever the fuck it is. Dig it! All right, let's go. Go to the same. Go to the house. Go to the jump up now. Go to the turn. 
Move out of the way. All right, no. Rally up. We never did that. Yes, never mind. We're going to do it now. This is a rehearsal. Let's roll the tape. <laughs> How do you get a sense of her spirit and style here? <laughs> so Flo tried especially hard to align the white women's feminist movement with the nascent black power movement. She was actually the only black woman in the, in the New York City chapter of the National Organization for Women, also known as NOW. Um, and she felt feminists should oppose war, use consumer action against the media, support black power, but she was ignored, ridiculed, and sidelined in the predominantly white organization. Nevertheless, she kept showing up to every meeting and she con continued to insist on fighting the intersecting inter injustices together. Um, and she often had a lot of success recruiting younger women and she said, the idea is just not to sit still in the boat, but rock it, make your feelings known. Her insistence on forging cross-movement alliances caused quite a scene when she brought two white feminists to the all-black spaces of the first Black Power Conference in 1967. But Flo kept on going. Um, another of her major contributions was devising a brilliant legal strategy that was later used in Roe v. Wade to legalize abortion. And the strategy was to have women who had had illegal abortions testify as expert witnesses instead of relying just on physicians. Uh, and Flo continued protesting. She kept getting arrested. She um, lectured across the nation until her illness and death. This is her on the right. She's in that group getting arrested. I think that's in, at Berkeley in 1974. Uh, Flo was 84 when she died. She spent much of her life spreading the message that political power is available to you. If anything is near enough to reach you, then you are just as near to it. And to illustrate the message, she often repeated a story, um, and here it is in her own words. There's this black lady at the dentist's, and she's leaning back in her chair, and the dentist hits her tongue with his drill once, and then he hits the inside of her jaw, and then he hits her gum. All of a sudden, he stops. He becomes aware that she has a fairly tight grip on his testicles. <laughs> Not daring to move, he says, what is this? And she looks up at him with a very pleasant expression, very benign, and she says, Now we're not going to hurt each other, are we, doctor? <laughs> Flo explained that the moral is, when you apply the right kind of pressure to the appropriate sensitive area, people become even more concerned than you are about your progress and happiness. <laughs> In short, she summarized, Honey, they can't afford to find out how much we can squeeze. <laughs> That was Deborah Straley on Florence Kennedy. You can see pictures of Flo in her cowboy hat and Bessie with her inventions at our website, deadladyshow.com. Again, the talks in this episode of the podcast come from the New York Dead Lady Show, which is hosted and curated by Molly O'Laughlin Kemper, with support from Nicholas Kemper and Claire O'Laughlin, as well as Lori Schwartz of the KGB Bar and bartenders Dan and Seiji. The next New York show will be June 3rd in the KGB Bar Red Room, and it's their eighth edition, so please join them. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud along with all of our episodes. If you'd like to support us, share the show, leave us a review, or have a look at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast for more options. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Molly and everyone in New York, and thanks to our lovely listeners. See you again soon. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.